You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, adventurers, children, authors, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the Blue Ocean. I bring this show to you monthly from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Just offshore of the KWMR listening area are the Greater Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries, which together protect 4,581 square miles. More than 60 species of rockfish dwell in vast numbers in the eastern Pacific Ocean from Baja to Alaska. White-fleshed and delicious, they frequently school together and often intermingle with other commercially sought fishes. But a few members of the rockfish family have spoiled the party. They were harvested nearly to economic extinction last century, and this handful of species is now largely protected by the Pacific Fishery Management Council from trawl nets, traps, and hooks. Rockfish are notoriously long-lived and painfully slow-growing, and as these species gradually recover from the depths of over-exploitation, the once phenomenal fishery may remain closed or restricted south of the Canada-United States border. So we're going to be exploring today the topic of rockfish conservation areas that are in place with my guest, Kelly Ames. And Kelly is a Pacific Fisheries Management Council staff member. She's responsible for the groundfish fishery analysis. She has in the past worked with Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife as groundfish management program leader and has worked with both commercial and recreational fisheries. So, Kelly, you are live on the air. Welcome to KWMR. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks for joining me today. I really want to start broad talking about fisheries management in general because a lot of people don't realize who really manages fisheries. And we have the states and the subs. So can you talk about what the role of the Pacific Fisheries Management Council is and provide a little information about its history? You bet. So the Pacific Fishery Management Council came about as did um, eight total regional fishery management councils. We all came about at the inception of the Magnuson-Stevens Act, which uh, came about in 1976 and is named after the late Senator Warren Magnuson of Washington and Senator Ted Stevens of Alaska. And so that act basically gave the U.S. control of the ocean waters, so basically out to 200 nautical miles, and worked to push out the foreign fishing uh, fleets that were operating off of our coasts and to implement measures to prevent overfishing. And so that act went in in 1976, and it's been amended a few times, most recently in 2006, and it established these regional fishery management councils. And so we are one of eight. Uh, one of eight. Uh, there's the North Pacific, the Pacific Council, which is who I work for, uh, Western Pacific, Gulf of Mexico, South Atlantic, Mid-Atlantic. There, there's a whole bunch of us around. Um, but what we do, we operate off of the West Coast, and we cover 
the states of California, Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. And we have authority basically seaward of those states out into the Pacific Ocean uh, for about 200 nautical miles. Now, before the Magnuson-Stevens Act of 1976, how was fisheries management handled? Well, it was it was very complicated, and, and there was a lot of foreign fishing activity, which uh, a lot of people believe that the high removals in those days, which were not very regulated, uh, were responsible for some of the rockfish declines that, that you spoke of at the beginning of, of your program. Okay. So was also one of the key changes changing the the exclusive economic zone out to 200 miles, was that changed at that time too? Yes, that's right. Yep, the, the Magnuson-Stevens Act gave us that U.S. control of our waters out to 200 nautical miles, which is called the EEZ or exclusive economic zone. Excellent. So rockfish are a popular species for people and have been enjoyed by divers and diners for years, but after decades of this pressure and, and years of poor ocean conditions, the reduced survival of young fish scientists and economists, they took a hard look at what to do as several species were considered overfished. What is considered overfished from the council perspective? Well, what we do is we work with our science and statistical committee, and they run some very complicated models to look at what level of harvest is appropriate for which type of species. So we have flatfish species, we have roundfish species, and we have rockfish species. And so these scientists help the council develop their policy framework to determine at what level do we want to keep these stocks in order to keep them at, you know, healthy levels that can be uh, sustained for the long term. So through the scientific process, the council develops their policy and gets kind of a target that they're aiming for. And so for rockfish, the goal is to keep their biomass or the level of the stock um, higher than 40%. Okay. How do you assess the biomass? Well, they do uh, stock assessments, which are very complicated, um, but once you listen to them a couple times, you start picking up on some kind of key uh, features that go into the stock assessments. So they take information from the fishery itself. So if you've ever been a recreational angler and, and you've landed your fish and you've been intercepted or interviewed by a state biologist, they'll ask you lots of questions about your fish. What type of gear were you using? Where were you fishing? How many fish did you catch? And a similar process occurs on the commercial side. And so both of those pieces of information, the what we call fishery-dependent data, um, as well as some research surveys conducted by scientists, so from universities or from the National Marine Fisheries Service, they take both these fishery-dependent and independent data sources and combine them into these complex models to get an estimate of how large the population is and, and whether or not we're achieving our harvest goals. So in 2000 or so, it seems there was an alarm going off about rockfish populations plummeting, or at least a few species. Which species which are, were the ones that were really being kind of the cause for the, the large conservation area development? Well, we had uh, quite a few stocks throughout time kind of go into what we call the overfished status. And so that means simply that the stock is not at the level uh, that meets the council's policy goals for being a healthy stock. And they were mainly rockfish species, so some boccaccio off of California, cow cod, yellow eye, canary, 
And, and as you pointed out, they are very long-lived species, so it takes quite some time to rebuild those populations. Um, but what is exciting to me is I have been in this process for about eight years, and we started off with about eight overfish species when I began uh, working in this process, and we are now down to down to about uh, five. And of that, we expect two of those species to indicate that they have been rebuilt in the next overfished or in the next stock assessment cycle. All right, I want to talk about that in a little bit. But going back to the early 2000 when they discovered all these overfished species, tell us a little bit about the rockfish conservation area. But where was it when it went into place, and what what the goal was for that? You bet. So there are basically three types of rockfish conservation areas off the coast, off the west coast. And so some of those are for recreational fisheries, and that's where we would say uh, during the recreational fishery you cannot fish uh, deeper than or shallower than a certain depth contour. And the idea there was to kind of push effort away from uh, where these stocks were that were rebuilding. Um, we also have two commercial large closed areas that are probably most commonly referred to as the rockfish conservation areas. So there are uh, up and down the coast, there are uh, big areas closed, say, from about 100 to 150 fathoms that are uh, areas where you cannot fish using pot, trap, or line gear or trawl gear to catch ground fish, and so that means you need to be transiting through those areas. You cannot stop to do any type of fishing activities. And these broad area closures were really designed to reduce pressure on these overfish stocks and, and promote rebuilding. Along with those area closures, we also had some other uh, large changes to management measures to, again, reduce that pressure um, on those overfish stocks. So we, in the trawl fishery, had uh, quite a consolidation of the fleet. Uh, there were there was a federal program to buy back some of the trawl vessel permits and get uh, reduce the fleet size. Um, we also put in, in addition to these area closures, large reductions in management measures. So limiting, we put in all these extra tools to limit the amount of catch that people could uh, interact with. So that was always something a little confusing to me, knowing that there is this large conservation area in place, and this is across all three states, there's still rockfish being sold in markets. So where is that coming from, the the rockfish? I know there's some areas where people can still fish. What, and has that changed seasonally in terms of the depths where fishing can still occur? Can you explain that a little bit? Yes, you bet. Um, in trying to rebuild these overfish species, there there are trade-offs that occur. And so while you may have an area closure that is reducing access to uh, one particular stock, there might be another area that allows greater access for another stock that might be in a healthier state. Um, additionally, in rebuilding, we really can't take catch of these species to zero, so there will still be some interactions for these rockfish species, even though we're closing these large areas of the coast where they live. They don't tend to follow our rules, and so even though we think they should always be in this depth band that we've closed, they often show up in other places and are still caught as, as what we call bycatch or unintended catch. And so that can be sold? D depending on the fishery and depending on the area, yes. So for the trawl rationalization program, these trawl vessels have individual fishing 
permits and quotas. And so they do have quotas for the overfish stocks. They're at very low levels, but they are allowed to catch and then land those species. Now, they must have quota pound to cover those species, and it's very expensive quota. And so the idea is that they're not out targeting on those species that are in rebuilding. It's simply that we've allowed them to retain that bycatch and actually sell it. I see. Okay. Now, with the RCA closure put in effect, has that put additional fishing pressure on other species or in areas where the RCA is not in effect? You know, it, it is definitely possible. We we do know, of course, that by closing these broad areas of the coast that we have displaced fishing, fishing efforts. So, you know, we know there was quite a lot of activity in that 100 to 150 fathom area uh, coast-wide that was closed. Um, but there has not really been a detailed analysis yet to know exactly how and where that effort was displaced. And, again, it is kind of confounding because along with the big area closure, you know, there were these other changes in management measures like consolidating the fleet size um, that, that had some big effects as well. I see. So that, that you're speaking of the trawl fleet. How about for recreational? Yeah, for recreational, I think there, you know, we, we do hear in our public comment at council meetings that, um, you know, that these closures are putting a lot of pressure on the nearshore stocks. For the recreational fishing, fishing community, for the charter boats, we do have fairly good information about the location of their fishing activities, but for the private anglers, the location of catches is reported at a much broader scale, so it's, it's very difficult to kind of tease out how the, the displacement has occurred in those fleets, but, uh, but I think it is fair to say that they have been displaced and that certainly there has been greater pressure on the nearshore species. Okay. For folks just tuning in, this is Ocean Currents, and my guest today is Kelly Ames from the Pacific Fisheries Management Council, and we're talking about rockfish conservation areas along the West Coast, some broad areas where there's closed fishing. I wanted to kind of get back a little bit to some of the vocabulary of trawl, fixed gear, and hook and line. Can you just describe the three different, or I guess, and there might be trap too, the different ways that we can catch rockfish with those different types of gears? Yeah, absolutely. So the recreational fishery, of course, is is mostly rod and reel is, is how we refer to them. And each state has limits on how many hooks can be used on each fishing pole. And so that's kind of one type of, of activity that occurs. And, again, the recreational fishery, you know, we do say that they are held to rockfish conservation areas because they have depth closures um, that apply to them to promote the rebuilding of, of overfished rockfish species. In the commercial fishery, we have what we call the non-trawl sector, so anything that is not a trawl gear. And so those are mostly long-line gears, which are um, <clears throat> long strings of gear that are laid on the ocean floor. And then off of those long strings of gear, which are called skates, there are lines that have hooks on them that catch various types of fish. Predominantly, uh, the main target would, would most likely be sable fish if you're uh, in deeper waters or maybe blackgill rockfish. And then if you're shallower, any of the, the nearshore rockfish species, so china, copper, and quillback, kind of the pretty fish that you might see uh, in the live fish markets or, you know, your fish of the day specials. 
For the non-trail sector, they also fish with pot gear. Those can be one single pot fishing at a time, or it might be a string of pots put together, which is, is called long lining the pots. Again, usually if you're in the deeper waters, you're, you're going to be looking at fish like sable fish, or, or you might also hear it called black cod, um, or black gill rockfish. And then nearshore, again, the, the nearshore rockfish species, and, and sometimes ling cod is, is a popular fish in that target strategy. For the trawl gear, you know, those are, there are two types of trawl gears. There's the bottom trawl uh, gear and then also the midwater. And our largest midwater strategy currently is for Pacific whiting. So that's a a white fish that uh, is most commonly used to make fish sticks. And and that's a, that's our biggest probably non non-bottom trawl gear type and fishery. And bottom trawl, you're saying, has been consolidated quite a bit. How many bottom trawlers do we have on the West Coast at this point? Oh, that is a good question. I I would venture we probably have um, maybe 80 active vessels. One of the things that I've always wondered about, I know that with rockfish that live specifically at those deeper depths, they're really accustomed to being at depth and when they come up to the surface, their air bladders expand hugely, making them kind of floaters on the water. Have there been changes in terms of how to reduce bycatch with rockfish in terms of catching fish that you really shouldn't be catching and having them survive being brought to the surface? Yes, there there have been. So um, in the recreational fishery in particular, you know, this barotrauma, which is where those fish are, are really affected at the change in, in pressure as they're being taken from the bottom of the seafloor up to the top, and, and they can suffer some physiological damage. There are, there are these new techniques with descending devices, is what they're called, and it can help a recreational angler get that fish back down slowly so that the fish has time to decompress, and it's really just analogous to what you might encounter if you're diving. You know, when you're diving, you certainly don't want to descend or ascend too quickly, or you end up, you know, with burst eardrums and, and other painful conditions. So that is kind of the, the general idea behind these descending devices is to slowly put the fish back down and let it acclimate to the various changes in pressure. And have those been shown to work in terms of, like, surviving and not just floating up somewhere else? Yes, absolutely. They, they, um, there is a lot of research uh, behind the barotrauma and the descending devices that has shown to, to be very successful. There, I think, are still some questions about, you know, how does the change in pressure, for example, affect their reproductive fitness? You know, is there anything that, that might have been changed or damaged in, in the process of being caught and then re-released at depth? So there, there's certainly still some questions, but I think the, the bulk of the research shows that the short-term survival is, is greatly extended by using these descending devices. That's great. There's new technology to help with that. Is it required or is it completely voluntary to use devices like that? It is voluntary to use them, but I would say certainly groups like the Recreational Fishing Alliance and and others have really promoted and gotten the word out and 
we are seeing large increases in the use of these descending devices. So when anglers land their catch and are intercepted by these state biologists that are asking them questions, they will ask, you know, did you have a descending device on board? Did you use it? And so we, we do have some good data that the use um, of descending devices has really increased as the education and awareness has come out. I think everyone loves rockfish, and so, you know, it, it, the anglers get very frustrated when it's the regulations that are telling them they can't retain these fish, and, and they're uncertain whether these fish will live uh, when they are released, because if they're not descended, they often do just float away, and, and they watch them yeah. uh, be predated on by other individuals. And so when they heard that there was this option that was backed by science that would help promote you know, the survival, they, they definitely got on board very quickly. Fantastic. So there's so many different gear types. Uh, you just explained a little bit of the different ones, the non-trawl sector and the recreational and the um, bottom contact, bottom trawl. It sounds like because there's different gear types, different species can be targeted. Since the rockfish conservation area has been affected, have there been abilities to maybe open up some types of fisheries that may not target some of these overfished species? Yes. Yeah, definitely. There there have been, well, and, and particularly, I guess I want to highlight the fact that a lot of these stocks are rebuilding. And so as a result of those rebuilding species, we've been able to loosen a lot of the restrictions. So there have been changes in the depth closures or the rockfish conservation area closures for the fisheries. For example, in California, when you compare the 2016 season to what's being proposed for 2017, there are several areas where they are going to be provided greater access to fishing grounds, so being able to fish deeper as a result of the rebuilding successes. All right. Is that all regionally based in terms of the different stock assessments, in terms of the differences there? Yes, that's right. So in some areas off California, they have much greater. So I think off of um, San Francisco and the central management areas, they'll be able to fish out to 40 and 50 fathoms, respectively, whereas in the northern management area, we still have quite a few issues with interactions with yellow-eye rockfish. And so in that area, in the northern management area, they can only go out to 30 fathoms. That's still an, an, a benefit compared to 2016, where during that certain time period, the May through October 31 time period, they were only allowed to go out to 20 fathoms. So there are, you know, that's a, that's a big relief for those recreational anglers to have that greater access to fishing grounds. So it sounds like you have a pretty good idea that the RCA, the rockfish conservation areas, have been successful, but a few species not so much. Are those long-lived species that really have maybe a slower time to rebound in population? Which species were those again? So, yeah, they're the... Right now, I would say uh, the most constraining or limiting species would still be yellow-eye rockfish in, in particular because yellow-eye rockfish is caught by all fishing sectors, so everyone is kind of bearing the brunt of, of uh, management restrictions to help rebuild the stock. There is also cow-cod rockfish, which is not encountered in as many fisheries, but the allowable harvest is very low, and so, you know, there's kind of that trade-off where you're even though you might not be caught by very many sectors, when the numbers are very low, it, it becomes very challenging. 
This has been, let's see, 14 years now. Does the Fisheries Management Council have an idea about the economic impact of this closure? Yes, yes, there have been. It, it is it is very difficult. I, I think kind of the direction that you're going in is more back to the traditional trawl and non-trawl RCA and not the recreational aspect. So I want to make it clear that, that my response here is, is really focused on that rockfish conservation area. There, yes, there, there have been a lot of opportunities lost by closing those broad areas of the coast. I think the challenge is trying to quantify what could have been. Mm-hmm. And so um, the council is currently considering whether or not they should remove the trawl rockfish conservation area because we do have this uh, shore-based IFQ program where there is individual accountability so that the fishermen are responsible for every single ground fish that they catch. And so they're, they're considering whether or not they need to have these broad area closures as their primary catch control. And in, in doing that analysis, it's been very difficult to say what will opening the RCA provide. So it, it is very challenging to, to put some point estimates on, you know, what they have lost through time and what they might be available to gain in the future. Well, Kelly, thank you so much. I have a couple more questions for you, but I think we're going to just take a quick break. So if you wouldn't mind just staying on the line, we'll come back and keep talking about rockfish conservation areas. You bet. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks for staying with us. Folks tuning in, this is Ocean Currents here on KWMR, and my guest is Kelly Ames. We're talking about rockfish conservation areas that have been in effect since 2002. Big areas of Washington, Oregon, and California have been closed to to fishing for rockfish. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back in a little bit and talk more about what's happening with the rockfish conservation areas. Thanks for sticking with us here on Ocean Currents. This is Jennifer Stock, and we're talking about rockfish conservation areas today. I have Kelly Eames with us from the Pacific Fisheries Management Council, giving us an overview of what's been going on with all that. And Kelly, welcome back. You're live on KWMR again. So thank you so much. This has been a really good overview of this really big area, and I can imagine the complexity of managing all these different streams of information and data and the changing conditions. So it's really great to hear, especially after all this time. Now, since the RCAs have been fairly successful with a lot of species kind of coming off that overfished list, is there consideration as to when RCAs will be opening up? Yes, so um, as we mentioned right before the break, the council is currently considering whether to remove that trawl rockfish conservation area, and uh, they have been under this consideration for about the last year or so, and they're scheduled to take final action um, on that consideration in June of 2018. And so one might uh, expect if, if they go down that path and remove the RCA that sometime maybe in 2019 or 2020, those uh, trawl rockfish conservation areas would be removed. Now, one thing that I've always wondered about was trawl, because trawl is one of the most destructive types of fisheries in terms of hurting habitat and taking unintended species. I'm curious why trawl would be opened up first when it's one of the most destructive, as opposed to some of the other ones that are a bit less destructive. Right. So the important thing to keep in mind is that the trawl rockfish conservation area purpose 
was specific to rebuilding the overfish species. And so, you know, again, it, its purpose was species conservation. And so given that those species conservation objectives are being, have been met for some species and are being met for other species, um, that, that that's really the, the heart of, of why that consideration is at the forefront. Additionally, with the trawl sector having their individual fishing quota pounds, we know that we can adequately control catch to promote rebuilding for the remaining stocks. Now, when the council is doing this consideration for the trawl rockfish conservation area removal, they're also looking at whether or not they have achieved their essential fish habitat objectives. And so they're doing these two actions at the same time because there is a recognition that by removing the rockfish conservation area, you are opening up habitat that has been closed for some time. Even if its primary objective was not um, habitat protection, there were, as secondary benefits, habitat protections provided. And so part of their action then is to consider these essential fish habitat proposals and decide whether additional essential fish habitat areas need to be uh, closed to kind of offset any opening of habitat areas that were with in the area that would have formerly been the trawl RCA. Can you define what essential fish habitat is a little bit more? It sounds like an area where trawling would not be allowed. Uh, not not necessarily. We have we have essential fish habitat closures that also apply to fixed gears. And so the idea is that, you know, there are regulations that require us to designate essential fish habitat areas for waters and substrate that are necessary for fish to spawn, breed, and feed from growth to maturity. And so um, we have uh, several areas off the coast that are already closed to either bottom contact gear, recreational gear, fixed gears um, to help you know, promote essential fish habitat as a whole. And how about, since you're talking about potentially opening up uh, trawl areas and rockfish conservation areas, is there a thought about fixed gear and recreational fishing rockfish conservation areas opening up in the future too? For the the non-trawl sectors, I have not uh, heard or seen the council prioritize that. I think the the main concern there is for the non-trawl commercial fisheries um, that they don't have the same level of observer coverage and individual accountability to ensure that catch of these overfish stocks is uh, at levels that promote rebuilding. And so, again, that's kind of the difference between the trawl program and the non-trawl is the, the wealth of information that we're getting under the trawl rationalization program allows the council some confidence that they're still meeting their uh, rebuilding objectives, and we just don't have that same information from the non-trawl commercial. For the recreational fisheries, as, as I provided earlier the example, many, all three states have kind of looked at, as these stocks rebuild, whether or not they can provide more depth available to recreational fishing. And so for California, uh, we recently had canary rockfish rebuild, and that was the primary driver for allowing greater access to, to fishing depths in California next year. One of the things I've heard as a, a tough thing for the coast, especially in small fishing communities like Bodega Bay and Bolinas and um, Point Reyes and the whole the whole region of these small little towns is that it's been really hard for small scale 
fisher folk to make a living with this conservation area. I'm curious how the council takes into a, a account small-scale businesses. That's like one person going out on a boat. It's really going to catch a sm- much smaller amount of fish compared to trawl. And how is that taken into account in terms of making these changes? Yes, you're absolutely right. That is one of the big challenges. You know, the Magnuson-Stevens Act that governs uh, what the council does has what's called these national standards and guidelines that are provided by the National Marine Fisheries Service. And it is it is a challenge to balance those uh, standards. And one of those standards, I'll give you just an example, is, you know, the goal is to basically take an amount of fish that can provide the greatest benefit to the nation while also keeping that stock at sustainable levels. Um, and given these overfished species constraints, it's been very difficult to, you know, provide greater access to target species while still promoting rebuilding of the overfish stocks. In those national standards, the council is also required to uh, provide for sustained community participation in fisheries and minimize adverse impacts to communities. And you can see where uh, rebuilding is sometimes in conflict with, with trying to achieve that other uh, national standard. So I think ultimately the council is striving to find these balances between the various mandates, and 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 it is absolutely very challenging uh, to the smaller ports and, and the smaller communities. One of the big questions I have with fisheries management is how do you account for the extremely dynamic ocean conditions we've been seeing in terms of the blob, that new anomaly that appeared a couple of years ago with warm water and El Nino and ocean acidification and demoic acid, and how do these these big issues that seem to be creeping up more and more affect the decision-making of the council in terms of making fisheries management decisions? Well, a few years ago, I think it was back in 2013, after several years of of kind of looking into it and, and developing it, the council adopted what we call a fishery ecosystem plan. And so the idea was to begin gathering and incorporating information about ecosystem dynamics into each of our fishery management plans. And so as part of this ecosystem-based management plan, the council receives an annual report. It's called the California Current Integrated Ecosystem Assessment. And so it's a document that's produced by National Marine Fisheries Service and other agencies that helps to kind of capture the annual state of the union, if you will. How mm-hmm. is our California current ecosystem, what what do we know about it, and what do we think um, is going to happen in the future, and how do those conditions relate to what management actions might need to be taken for the directed fisheries that we're trying to provide for. I can give you kind of one example. This is, for me, kind of the easiest one to get my head wrapped around because sometimes it is very challenging to take these very complicated um, projections of, of ecosystem indicators and understand how to directly apply them to management. But we have seen, for example, with the demoic acid in the ground fish fishery, we have what's called an open access fishery, which means anyone can participate participate and you don't need a license. So participation is unlimited. And we do know that when demoic acid levels are high and the crab fishery is either canceled or postponed or there are low levels of take, that fishermen look for other opportunities. And so they often come into the open access sable fish fishery or black cod fishery. 
And so when we know that domoic acid levels are, are causing problems in other directed fisheries, you know, we have to make sure that the landing limits for our sablefish fishery are going to match that increased level of participation so that we can make sure then that our total catch limits for sablefish aren't exceeded. So there's some kind of direct ways that we can respond to it and then maybe less direct, like, for example, incorporating some of the ecosystem information into a stock assessment. For you personally, what are you ultimately hoping to see as a successful outcome from the RCA? I'm assuming getting all those overfished species off the list, but is there anything else you want to add about that ultimate success of the RCA? Yeah, I guess my, what was exciting to me is the, the rebuilding of these rockfish stocks. It, it's exciting to me to look across the board at each of the fisheries and see the opportunities that we're able to provide. When I started in this process, we were at very, very low levels of both canary and yellow eye, and we were closing large portions of the coast in addition to the trawl rockfish conservation area. There were many businessmen that were put out of business and, and communities that are definitely not as engaged in the fishery as they had been. And, and I can see on the horizon that as these stocks have rebuilt and, and others are kind of in the wings coming into rebuilt status, that uh, we're going to be able to provide greater opportunities. And, and that's really positive. Since fisheries are so complicated in terms of regulations and dates, are there specific websites you recommend for people that are interested in fishing? I know a lot of fishing people are already well hooked up to those sites, but I'm just kind of curious what you would recommend. Well, I guess I'd have to plug our own website, which is P as in Paul, council.org, so pacificcouncil.org. Um, we have a wealth of information there and also links to other websites that, um, you know, if you get down your rabbit hole and you decide you want to learn more about one particular fishery or another, there are links to the state management agency pages, the federal government, the tribal governments, etc. Well, Kelly, I really, really appreciate you giving us such a great overview today of the rockfish conservation areas. I learned a lot today. It's very, very complex. So thank you again for all your time today. Great, and thank you. For folks tuning in, you're listening to Ocean Currents here on KWMR, and I've been speaking with Kelly Ames of the Pacific Fisheries Management Council about rockfish conservation areas that have been in place along the West Coast between Washington, Oregon, and California for the last 14 years, since 2002, and some potential changes coming to open up a little bit for the trawl area and some species that are getting off the overfish list, which is very exciting. I want to share our next piece of ocean currents coming up here is a piece called Positively Ocean. This is produced by volunteer Liz Fox, and she looks for stories that are basically helping the ocean and what are, what's doing it right. And she focused on a story about a study that involves the rockfish conservation areas and the sanctuaries and some scientists doing some work. So we'll learn a little bit more about that here on Ocean Currents. Here's Positively Ocean. Hi, this is Liz Fox at Positively Ocean, where we celebrate the ocean and look at what's working well. This week's rockfish story takes us to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean along the continental United States. Two decades ago, rockfish, a group of slow-to-mature, bottom-dwelling fish, were in extreme peril from overfishing. In 2002, the Pacific Fisheries Management Council banned fishing for rockfish in large areas along the length of the United States' west coast. As a result of this protection, several rockfish 
rockfish species are bouncing back. But without science, we wouldn't have known about the population declines in time to save the species. Rick Starr is a researcher at Moss Landing Marine Laboratories. Throughout his career, he studied coastal life in the ocean and worked with groups to help make smart use of resources. The way that science works is that we do our best to provide information about a particular species and provide a set of sideboards as to what we think that population is doing. The problem is that throughout history in the United States, unbridled economic actors have decimated natural resources, sometimes beyond recovery. That's why state and federal governments created agencies to measure resources and regulate their extraction. Our land-based regulatory agencies limit the number of trees we can cut so forests have a chance to recover after harvest or environmental events like fires or drought. In the ocean, regulatory agencies determine how many fish we can catch without destroying a population, where we can drill for oil, and where to protect exceptionally critical coastal ecosystems. Scientists in the late 1990s witnessed, recorded, and warned that a spell of inhospitable oceanic and atmospheric patterns impacted rockfish reproduction and, coupled with commercial fishing, could decimate populations off the West Coast. The Pacific Fisheries Management Council imposed a fishing ban and created rockfish conservation areas in 2002 to support rockfish's long-term survival. One of STAR's challenges was to estimate the number of rockfish both inside and outside of the rockfish conservation areas. Those numbers would help determine if the areas achieved their intended goals. The California Collaborative Fisheries Research Program funded his sampling studies and STAR recruited students and recreational and commercial fishermen to become citizen scientists. And our goal was to engage stakeholders, primarily anglers in the Central Coast area, in monitoring those marine protected areas. And the reason's twofold. One is we believe that any area that is put off limits to fishing should be monitored and the information will be best used if it's monitored by people who are affected by that decision. And secondly, we wanted to use the expertise of the anglers in the Central Coast area to help us monitor fishes. Star, his colleagues, and citizen scientists measure rockfish and their populations in 2014 and compared the results to the results of similar surveys in 2002. The data showed that protections for rockfish worked. The good news was we found lots of large fishes in those areas that had been heavily fished uh, in the 80s and 90s, and that both the numbers of fish and the size of the fishes were uh, much greater than they were in the 1990s. And we can say that the increased numbers and sizes of fishes were directly related to the closures, but also directly related to some environmental conditions. But there's a constant push and pull between fishing interests and conservation. When fish populations rebound to health levels, anglers seek access, and regulatory agencies prefer to relax their protections. So while STARS data show that many species of rockfish recovered enough to sustain a population, numbers for yellow-eye rockfish and cow cod still haven't reached a turning point. Unfortunately, there are three or four different species of rockfishes that still haven't completely rebounded or rebuilt from being in an overfished state. So there are a couple of species right now whose populations, low populations, 
are constraining the options for the Pacific Fishery Management Council. And right now, uh, the managers and the fish, fishing communities are trying to work through that to try to figure out how to increase fishing access and fishing opportunities while still protecting those few species that are uh, whose populations are still low. For STAR, the role that science and information play is paramount. And it's really important to maintain the information base to allow us to make wise decisions about ocean resources. And that information base uh, comes from research, and it also comes from having uh, the fishing community out on the water catching fish. This is an example of how to do right by the ocean folks. Until next time, I'll be searching for all things positively ocean. For Ocean Currents Radio on KWMR in West Marin, this is Liz Fox reporting in Berkeley, California. There you have it, Positively Ocean by Liz Fox. And I wanted to highlight, too, that study she was referring to, uh, Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary actually worked with uh, Rick Starr's group and, and many partners to have Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, the area right around Cordell Bank, as part of that study. And in addition to areas, um, let's see, around the Farallons and Half Moon Bay. And they had good success in bigger fish, more fish, and higher species diversity. So it's been a success, and I'm sure we'll be curious to see how much more success we can have as the as time goes by here. I also wanted to mention um, Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. We've been doing remotely operated vehicle surveys on Cordell Bank from time to time and working on establishing a more regular monitoring pattern. And there's two reports up on our website, cordellbank.noaa.gov, to check out. We had a survey in 2014 with our ROV. And in that uh, report, you can see highlights of what was seen on that cruise. One of the things that we've seen um, in the last few years is that Cordell Bank is a really great habitat for yellow eye rockfish, which is one of those species that's been a bit slow to recover getting off that overfished list. So it's been a real value to have some protections around Cordell Bank that's a real healthy, great rocky reef habitat to help yellow eyes in particular. Want to just highlight a couple other announcements before we wrap up the last show of 2016 here on Ocean Currents. Um, this past Thursday, the Gulf of the Far- Greater Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries hosted the Beyond the Golden Gate Research Symposium at the Romberg Tiburon Center. And 40 talks were given, about 20 posters were presented about current research happening in the sanctuaries offshore. It was a fantastic overview of all the different research happening uh, from tiny phytoplankton to the mega blue whales and all the different stories that science is telling us about what's happening in our very dynamic ecosystem offshore here. This year, they used a hashtag to curate content from those that like to tweet. And this is something that if you happen to be a Twitterer, you can go to Twitter and type in the hashtag and see some of the highlights from the talks. And you can just go to the hashtag. It's B as in boy, GGS16. I'll repeat that. It's BGGS16. And you can type that into the search to curate all the tweets that were presented during the talks from the, the folks in the crowd. So kind of fun using social media to, to keep some communication efforts going to expand our reach. I just want to thank all of you for listening to Ocean Currents, and thank you for supporting KWMR. I want to wish you all 
very happy, festive, and safe, replenishing season of holiday for all the various holidays that are happening this time of year. Thank you to Kelly Ames of the Pacific Fishery Management Council for being on the show, and Liz Fox, producer of Positively Ocean. Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month, 1 to 2 p.m. Ocean Currents has a podcast. You can go to iTunes to search for that or come to the sanctuary website, cordellbank.noaa.gov, to hear past episodes. And we have 10 years of episodes at this point. And also, Ocean Currents has a Twitter feed. You can follow Ocean KWMR on Twitter to get information about the Ocean Currents radio program and supporting links about each of the shows that we have here on the Ocean Currents on KWMR. So we'll be sharing information out there. Check it out. I love hearing from listeners, so if you have ideas for topics, questions, comments, please email me at cordellbank at noaa.gov, or you can tweet at OceanKWMR. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the ocean, bay, or whatever body of water you can get into or nearby safely, and certainly on the West Coast here, please be careful of these big winter storms and the big swells um, along the coast as you visit the beaches. This has been Ocean Currents here on Community Radio for West Marin KWMR. Have a great afternoon. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, Email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Thanks to bensound.com for royalty-free music for the Ocean Currents podcast. For more info, visit www.bensound.com.